Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high-rise in beautiful Beverly Hills adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today for two decades and counting, one of the best-known and most respected writers on the NBA beat, first for the Los Angeles Daily News, then the New York Times, and now Bleacher Report, also the host of the Full 48 podcast. Joining me from our studios in New York, hello and welcome, Howard Beck. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm wonderful. I'm so glad uh, we've had a, a nearly season-long dialogue on uh, on email, and we're finally chatting, at least virtually. Yes, a uh, an ongoing conversation that was uh, largely fruitless up until this point. So thank you for st- st- sticking with me. I kept meaning to try to get out to L.A., and it just somehow never happened. I blame the Lakers. You don't worry about it. It was a very uneventful basketball season out here. Not much happened. Nothing, nothing happened. Nothing of consequence. So um, what did the next couple months of your life look like? You, do, you, do you talk to your family? Are you in contact with them at all, or do you just fully go off the grid? Yeah, I kind of become a ghost. It's a very strange sensation, um, probably more so for them than for me, but maybe maybe all parties involved. It's different now, though, I will say. So you, you mentioned my, my resume uh, of, of you know being at the Daily News, where I covered the Lakers, at the New York Times, where I covered the Knicks. Now, the Knicks, of course, um, usually did not make the playoffs, but nevertheless, the Times being a national paper, they would say, okay, um, Playoffs are going on. What's interesting? Let's let's just let's just play it by ear. And I would just start jumping into playoff series. I actually during those days, I often played the part of the Grim Reaper. Like if you if I showed up at your playoff series, especially the first or second round, it usually meant uh, somebody was about to be eliminated. Mm-hmm. Usually a top seed. Yep. Maybe you know maybe uh, Dirk in, in two thousand seven when they lost to the to the Warriors, uh, the first you know one seed losing to the eight seed. Um, I, that's what I would do. I'd r- run around closing out series until we got to the conference finals and finals, and then we'd plug in for the duration. Now, in my role with Bleacher Report, I'm more of a takeout writer, feature writer, so I look for stories that are in and around series, but aren't necessarily tied specifically to who's up or down in the series. So I'm actually, for that, uh, because of that, uh, that, that shift in focus, I'm actually around a little bit more, at least in April, early May. But by the time we get to about mid-May, I, yeah, I just disappear. It is funny how, for many people, I always remember uh, Malcolm Gladwell. I'm assuming you're familiar with the author Mal- Malcolm Gladwell said of that he he loved following sports but didn't necessarily watch sports all that much. And and uh, I think it was Bill Simmons he was talking to said that's crazy. And he said, well, lots of people follow the stock market and don't need to be there on the trading floor. And I I feel like that's kind of where we're getting and what you're doing suits our present age, where a lot of us care more about the storylines than balls going in the basket or or misses. Like, honestly, as a writer, and not just yourself, but the feel you get for the league, what is a more interesting story? What's going to happen in the playoffs or what's going to happen immediately after that? (laughs) So my most recent story that we published on Bleacher Report was all about free agency. Right, right. both New York teams, both LA teams, being in free agency and with max cap room, first time it's ever happened. Yeah, uh, it you know that story ran. I think it might have still been like March thirty first. Like we weren't even till to April yet 
and we're doing a big blowout about the summer. Mm-hmm. Listen, you can you can spin this either way. Either we in the media are too obsessed about all the stuff off the court, whether it's the little soap operas that that kind of go through a thread together an NBA season, or whether it's the off season and who's going where next. We we play a big role in that as those who cover the game. But it's the fans, too. Like, the fans love this stuff. We wouldn't write it if you weren't going to click it. Well, right. And, and you used to be guessing. Now, yeah, you see the clicks. You see where the interest actually is. Oh, yeah. No, we know for sure. Like, when I, tell, when I said to my editors, like, a, a month and a half, two months ago, listen, there's going to be something new this summer. This has never happened before. Both New York teams, both L.A. teams, all in free agency at the same time, all with Max Caproom, and all four of them are in a position, though they're in various states of... of you know, competitive levels, whatever. They are all in a position to be attractive for different reasons. So nothing like this has ever happened before. And my editors immediately were like, let's do that now. And I said, eh, it feels a little early. Nope, let's do it now. Somebody else is going to do it later. Let's do it while it's fresh. And which, which is a good call by them, by the way. Um, and the readers clicked like crazy on that story. Like I, I know for a fact that that story did very, very well. And that's not my goal in going into a story. I mean, I'm still a bit of an old school purist as a newspaper guy. There's a part of me that really hates that I know what the readership is on any given story. It's practical. It's it's a, it's a it's a good tool to have. I don't want to chase clicks ever. I don't want to feel like I'm doing just the stories that are are going to just you know generate the dopamine hits among the the fans. But it is helpful to know what people are interested in most and to at least you know, tailor it sometimes, not always, sometimes to those interests. And listen, the fans do love the off-court stuff and the speculation, trade rumors, transactions. I don't I don't uh, work in that area, really. I'm not one of those chasing the news. That's not my role for Bleacher Report. And it sounds, wasn't really my sounds role Sounds exhausting to people who have it, those jobs. <laughs> absolutely exhausting. I wouldn't want to do it. But I can tell you, having a lot of friends who have worked in that space, yeah, that, like, Fans love that stuff. And we didn't. this didn't used to be the format, right? Like, everybody did a little of everything, and now it's very specialized. There are people who do almost entirely just trade, free agency, hirings, transactions, reporting, and there is a massive following for it. Well, a part of the reason why we are also interested in what is going to happen next is we, we love that stuff, but also because it is basically a foregone conclusion we all know what you know it's like watching game of thrones for five seasons knowing who's going to end up on the throne at the end the warriors are and have been beyond a consensus pick to win the finals if i forced you to bet a a thousand dollars on the field how much would you need to get back in the nba playoffs to feel comfortable making that bet against the warriors (laughs) i don't know the answer to that i am not a gambler and i'll just put it this way um, I believe, as most people do, that the Warriors are going to win the championship. They are favored, absolutely should be favored. There's a very good chance they're going to win it again for the third straight time and the third time in four years. That said, I think there is more reason to be uh, skeptical than there has been ever since this ran began because their chemistry is a little weird, because we know that there's this uncertainty about Durant's future, because their bench is as weak as it's been because they've gotten old in a couple of key spots and because also just attrition, just, you know, you do this long enough with the same basic core group, eventually the the freshness, the novelty, the um, everything, everything just gets worn out. Guys get worn out of on each other. 
Uh, you know, that's why the win totals generally keep declining for teams that are back year after year. And as the Warriors have, I mean, they were the very rare team to have gone from championship to increasing their win total by a lot and setting a record with that 73 win season like that. That's insane. It's, it's highly unusual. Usually you have a letdown, but they could not sustain. I'm not even saying sustain a 70 win pace. They couldn't sustain even being a 60 plus win team because it's it's just that hard. And and the system makes it hard. The cap structure makes it hard. It's supposed to be. And so um I, I I think there's you know if 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 the Milwaukee Bucks or the Toronto Raptors or maybe even the Rockets emerge as the champions this year instead, it will be a surprise but not necessarily a shock. Okay, I I, I think um very often in in fighting like I don't know if you watch the UFC at all you'll see somebody who looks like an absolutely unbeatable champion and then somebody will take them the distance and it just makes them look human enough that everybody else believes they can beat that team and it just seems to happen that very shortly thereafter that that once indomitable champion does lose the rockets at least made the warriors look beatable last year and of course they're among the contenders of teams that could finish the job and knock them off I just can't escape on a gut level. I'm, I'm not a sabermetrics guy. Like I, I like it, but I don't pretend to understand all that much of it. I can't escape the gut conviction that the Rockets had their chance against the Warriors last year. Do you agree or disagree just for the Rockets versus the Warriors if that's the finals again on the Western Conference? I mostly agree. There's a small part of me that thinks that... And look, every conversation I have about the Warriors goes back to one overriding premise, which is, can they be beaten? Sure. Can they be beaten without the Warriors helping you beat them? Right. No. And no. with, and with Can, Iguodala being out for half the series. Let's and, not forget that. Well, yeah. And, and that part, too. Like, we focus so much on Chris Paul being out. And yes, Chris Paul is the better player and the, the more Hall of Fame qualified player than Andre Iguodala, though some people will tell you that Iguodala has a case. Um, but they were both out for key parts of that series. And people always focus on, well, if Chris Paul hadn't gone down, the Rockets win that se- Well... Yeah, maybe, but if we're going to play the what-if game, Iguodala is really, really important to that team. Yep. And yeah, they have four All-Stars. Yeah, they got two recent MVPs, but Iguodala is a huge part of what makes the Warriors the Warriors, and he's part of their very limited depth. And there's so much that he does that that it, that others cannot replicate. So yeah, if we're going to play the what-if game, maybe maybe it doesn't get to Game 7 if Iguodala never goes down. That's right. also possible. Yes, I think so. So l- listen, could the Rockets possibly beat them? Yes. I mean, the way they've been playing the last couple of months, the other level that Harden has taken himself to, I think, uh, is indicative of a team that deserves that respect. However, I wonder about the Rockets in in the sense that they have become so Harden-centric, so Harden-focused. When you get to the playoffs, and listen, I know, you could ski Merrill all you want against Harden, and he's one of those players who is, he's such a great scorer, he will find ways to beat you. But I got to believe that the Warriors if given the chance in a, in a best-of-seven series to scheme against Harden on the on the belief that they are now overly dependent on him and you want to try to force other guys to beat you, that may be the Achilles heel for the Rockets. You generally don't win a championship if you are too one-dimensional, over-reliant on one guy. Everybody eventually can be schemed against somehow. And I, I think... I think that's going to be the interesting part. Does anybody have the personnel, whether it's the Warriors or somebody else in the playoffs, to say, okay, listen, we think, you know, you you guys are now over that on Harden. We're going to see if we can take that away from you and see what happens and pull pull that one thread out. Because Chris Paul at this stage of his career probably is not going to beat you too many games. You know, he'll he's still very, very good. 
but he's not obviously at Harden's level. Yeah, yeah, and they don't and have pro- any other weapons. And he's probably not a. Uh, 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 actually, I heard Coach David Thorpe say on your podcast that that's a function of getting older as a superstar. It's not. Are you still a superstar? It's how often are you a superstar? And Chris Paul is unlikely to be a superstar right. for seven games. Well, or even maybe for four quarters of one game, right? Um, you know, and then look, the the playoffs are very forgiving to older players because. There are no back-to-backs. You have, you know, at least a day off between games and sometimes multiple days off between games. And that works to a player like Chris Paul's favor. But, yeah, I don't know that you're going to get that Chris Paul, the one that you need, long enough through three rounds and then potentially finals to to count on the idea that, well, we, we've got two Hall of Famers. Okay, yes, Chris Paul is, is, is that player sometimes. Is he enough? Also, he's been hurt. In a lot of postseasons, including last year's. Yeah. So, and then the, the the third part of this, I should have mentioned on my previous, uh, you know, tangent on Harden. I I don't know if Harden can sustain this in the postseason. the The track record is that he can't. the The, the general, you know, the history of the last few years is, and the reason that they got Chris Paul is. Harden has done too much in the regular season. It's left him vulnerable sometimes as they got deep into the postseason, and that's been a problem for the Rockets. You mentioned a list of teams that you would not be shocked to see win the title this year. I forget. The second seed in the West were not on that list, were they? Would you be shocked if the Nuggets (laughs) won the championship? Yes. Right? Um, Listen, and this is, and I've had this conversation with a bunch of people around the league. And I've even had this conversation with some people within the Denver Nuggets organization, and nobody feels that this is an insult, including in Denver. This is not an insult. This is not a slight. This is not underestimating the Nuggets. The reason that I and a lot of people around the league feel this way about the Nuggets is we haven't seen it. And if you don't have a track record in the NBA, if you've never been in the playoffs and the Nuggets haven't been there in years, and this particular Nuggets roster has never been there, and their only player with any significant postseason experience is Paul Millsap. It's a very young team. They're making a big leap from non-playoff team to second seed. Doesn't happen that often. And so while their standing, while their their record and their place in the standing suggests a contender, their recent history suggests this is a team just taking the next step. And usually in the NBA, and these rule you know, I call these the, like the the unwritten laws of of like the NBA playoffs. And they generally hold true like 95% of the time. But one of them is that youth doesn't win. And one of them is that if you make a big breakthrough as a young on-the-rise team, usually you got to have a setback for a year or two. You get to the first round, you get knocked out. The next year you go to the second round, you get knocked out. And eventually you break through. That's often the way it goes. And the Nuggets, for all of their talent and depth, they've just never been on this stage before. And that matters, especially because they're going against teams whether it's the Spurs potentially in the first round or the Thunder in the first round, second round matchup against potentially the Rockets or the Trailblazers, um, you're going to go against teams that have a, a ton more experience than you do in the playoffs, and that may show itself. Meanwhile, on the Eastern side, you know, we've been talking all season about the four big teams in the East. It just feels to me, and I know this is the one and two seed, but on a gut level, it feels that there is a, a real drop off after the Bucks and the Raptors. Agree or disagree? I disagree on this one, actually. Um, the regular season standings are potentially misleading in this regard. What is that? Just from a, a, a basic overview, those four teams, and apologies to the Pacers who sometimes we'll belong get to, in this we'll get to them in a sec. Yeah, yeah. Um, when it comes to Philly, Boston, Toronto, Milwaukee, four very very good teams, 
four teams built very differently, different personalities, different kind of personnel, and none of them have been to the finals in recent years. And only one of them, Toronto, has even been to the conference finals. Milwaukee hasn't won a playoff series since 2001. <laughs> um, Philly, it's been a while since they've been made a deep playoff run. The Celtics obviously were in the conference finals last year, so they have made a deep playoff run, but they did that with a, a, a sort of different construction because they had no Kyrie and no Gordon Hayward, and they've got a different challenge this year. Point being, you cannot assume anything on any of these four teams because they're still testing themselves. Even Toronto, which is another team that's recently been in the conference finals, well, that was the Kyle Lowry, DeMar DeRozan Toronto Raptors. This is the Kawhi Leonard version, and with Mark Gasol on board, and with Pascal Siakam playing a big role. It's a different team. So there's the first part. The second part is, I am not sold on the idea that we should just dismiss Boston or Philly because they had rough regular seasons. Uh, Take the Sixers first. We often see the record that, that's been thrown up about uh, you know their record against the other three top teams, and I think they have the worst of those four against the other group. It, it's largely because of they made two massive trades in season, which is very rare for a contending type team. One for Jimmy Butler early in the season, another for Tobias Harris, uh, you know, a little more than midway through the season. So they've had like three separate seasons. And somebody tweeted the other day, I think that their preferred starting lineup has had like 10 games that they've started together. (laughs) So the Sixers are still evolving. Now you could say that that's why we should brush them to the side. I would say it just means that we don't know uh, fully what their, their, their full potential is, but they have an incredibly talented starting five, a bench that's solid enough. And especially in the playoffs where you play your starters longer, the depth may not matter as much. The Celtics started the season as the team that I believed had the best talent and depth in the Eastern Conference, for sure, maybe in the NBA. Sure. I thought they were a 60-plus win team. Chemistry ended up being a huge issue for them, and they have not they have not played up to their potential. But that's not to say that the playoffs won't bring a different kind of focus and they will find their, their rhythm. So, no, I think all four of those teams are absolutely in it. I guess more what I'm saying is you know what you're getting from the first two. I would I would be— I More would, so. Yeah, yeah, more so. I guess, you know, as I'm, as I'm saying it out loud— I would be shocked if the Raptors beat themselves. We know the history, but so much of that was you take LeBron out of that story and you're probably telling a completely different story. Who knows what the story is? But a lot of that story had to do with with LeBron James. I I don't see uh, the Raptors falling apart. Even Milwaukee, though, you're right. They're 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 young team. They haven't been there. How can you say you don't trust uh, Denver and in pretty much the same breath say that you you trust Milwaukee? Point well taken. The Pacers, to me, are the fifth team and at times have been in the mix, standings wise, of the top four. Again, it's conventional wisdom, but I think I'd buy the conventional wisdom. It would be very shocking to see them coming out of the East or even to be in an Eastern Conference Finals. Agree or disagree? With all due respect to Indiana fans. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Pacers, what they have done this season is absolutely positively impressive. And this is two straight years, by the way, that we have all had to kind of say, wait a minute, did we underestimate this team again? Uh, Nobody saw it coming last year. It was shocking when they had Oladipo. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And all credit to Nate McMillan and his staff. Yeah. All credit to Kevin Pritchard for the the pieces uh, and the, the roster he's put together. All credit to those players for having the toughness and the resiliency and the belief a year ago to become that breakout team and then the resiliency this year to endure after Oladipo went down a couple months ago. And what they've done absolutely deserves a, a ton of praise and it's been very impressive. But... <laughs> 
in the playoffs especially, that's when you need a Victor Oladipo. You need closers. You need guys who can manufacture points and uh, manufacture shot or, or, or uh, great shots out of thin air, or, or sometimes not so great shots, but then make them. And if you don't have an Oladipo, if you don't have a Kawhi Leonard or a Giannis, a LeBron, a Russell Westbrook, a Paul George, then you're in trouble, usually in the postseason. So as, as inspiring as the Pacers have been, no, I, I don't think we should put much stock into their postseason chances. Tell me something. Um, as I said earlier, sometimes even when in, in, in MMA, when you know who the best guy in the division is, it's still fun to watch guys lower down in the rankings slug it out because their good matchups are just intriguing in their own right. Out of the NBA teams that are virtually certain to not win the championship, who are you most interested in seeing in the playoffs? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um who am I most interested in seeing of a non-contender, essentially? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, there's a couple different ways we could go with 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 this. Uh, I'm intrigued to see the Clippers just because they're another one of those teams where no true star. You know, Danilo Gallinari is, is as close as they have to a star. They've traded away their best player two years in a row, Blake Griffin a year ago, and then Tobias Harris this season. And yet here they are uh, in the playoffs with a, a very solid record and have you know great free agent aspirations this summer. And what they do in the playoffs matters to the extent that you kind of want to make a great impression on people. They already have, but mm-hmm. they could be making an even greater impression uh, by making a nice run and you know maybe pulling a first round upset. I you know not ruling that out. Uh, the Brooklyn Nets team in my backyard, who like the Clippers, very a lot of parallels between these two franchises as as the uh, the stepchildren in their own markets. The Nets have been this gutty, nobody saw it coming team that absolutely overachieved, and that you know you know D'Angelo Russell, sure he became an All Star, but he was a he was an injury replacement all-star. That's not look, he's an all-star no matter what. Like the label is the label. You get it, you earn it and it's there forever. But he wasn't voted in and he wasn't chosen by the coaches. Well, and then there's and, the conference imbalance on top of that. He's not a Western Conference. Sure. Also. Yeah, I mean, I don't I I try to dismiss that one only because it's it's kind of unfair. We can never get a a, a fair comparison when we start introducing the conference differences, but it's but you know, it's fair for people to raise. Mm-hmm. Um so again, curious to see what kind of noise they can make. Um, aside from those, you know, honestly, it, it, I think it's probably the Nuggets. I, like, are are they really this good, or are they potentially a paper tiger? And again, that's not. I don't mean that to be in a in a demeaning way. It's just that the regular season record is great. Their their talent is is really solid. We haven't seen it before. It'd be fun to see them make a run. It'd be fun to see them as this new emerging power that is is young and spry and hungry and just starting to figure out what their identity is. You know, I've got my doubts about them, but I, I am definitely intrigued to see what they can do. For the first time in you know forever, we're talking about the playoffs and we're not talking about LeBron James. Um, I was curious to get your take on this. If you know, if the Lakers front office somehow pulls off a miracle and microwaves a contender around him, that's one thing. Let's just say hypothetically that does not happen, and LeBron James enters his year thirty-five season without a complimentary superstar, not on a contender. Let's just say that he is never going to be, for the sake of conversation, the primary guy on a championship contender for the rest of his career. In the event that that happens, I think he would leave a very complicated legacy. Like, he's going to leave a complicated legacy no matter what. Of course, the best or second best player of all time is part of that, but we don't need to go through all of the the negatives with him. You know, not one, not two, not three, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
I will fully confess to being somebody who, you know, of course respects his game, but has never enjoyed really rooting for LeBron James. If this, if we've already seen the best of LeBron, what other player's legacy would you compare LeBron's to? And feel free to go outside of basketball, because I think it's sort of an interesting thing that you can kind of start to think about now. A guy, you know, because Jordan... For all of his flaws, maybe we perceive him differently if he plays today and we're able to know the three-dimensional guy a little bit better, but was always on a pedestal, was always revered. LeBron, there will be a a fair amount of negatives that are associated with all the greatness and with all the winning. I have a feeling that this is going to be as much eye of the beholder as everything else with LeBron's career has been. In other words, if you're one of those people who looks at LeBron and says, three and six in the finals... He's, you know, he'll never be Michael. He didn't, you know, he 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 had to go chase rings with Dwayne. He did this. He did. If you're one of those people, nothing LeBron does is ever going to satisfy you. And if you're someone who respects what LeBron has done, eight straight finals with two different franchises, nine finals overall, the three championships, everything he's done off the court, in the community, politically, otherwise, I don't think anything that happens with his Lakers tenure, however long it lasts, will change your perception. I do think that it'll be it'll be tough to watch if he if he's stranded on a on a non-contending team and you know and this, for this matter you know, a non-playoff team this this season if I don't think that's going to continue I I think they will probably be a playoff team in the near future I Agreed. don't know who the Lakers are going to get this summer but I I don't I don't suspect we've seen the last of LeBron in in, in a playoff. Uh, surrounding. Oh, goodness. No, even if it's not with the Lakers. I mean, they couldn't do that to the basketball world. They'd have to let him go uh, if they couldn't get to the well, playoffs again. I mean, listen, I'd be shocked if he's... If, if the idea of, the, of LeBron being traded, I, I just think, would be... It's, it's to me, um, unimaginable. Even if, there I, was I a, even if there was hypothetically another miserable year that that wouldn't be mutually acceptable? Possibly. But listen, yeah. depending on who you talk to in the league, and I don't take this as an absolute, I, I don't... Um, I don't dismiss this this explanation or rationale for why he's in LA but I also don't fully embrace it there are a lot of people around the league who believe that he went to LA knowing full well that he might never contend again that he was okay with it that he had his championships that he had his finals appearances he had his MVP trophies he had everything he needed he was going to go there play out the rest of the rest of his career as you know a guy on, on a on a you know maybe a solid playoff team but not a contender but that the real reason for moving to LA was some combination of family and outside business and his post career, his post playing career, that is a real belief by a lot of people around the league. I don't know if that's fair to LeBron. I don't know how much that weighed in. It was obviously part of the exercise, but if that's all true, and that he chose the Lakers because of a combination of location and their stature as a, a legendary franchise, then the idea of of bailing on it and saying screw this trade me to i don't know to the clippers the lakers aren't sending him to the clippers i no. want to stay in la but i don't want to play for you anymore send me to the clippers i mean i i can't see that where else are they going to trade him where else would be acceptable to him and if his family and you look they already had a, a home there so it was comfortable I just the idea of uprooting them for this final stage of his career. I just don't know that it makes sense. Now, listen, you make a good point. If it's if if they're terrible, if it's absolutely miserable, then you know maybe at some point you start to entertain that. But I'd be stunned. I I think it's more likely that they figure out a way to you know pro, you know re- reinforce this roster, whether it's finding him a second true all star or just better role players, whatever it may be. And they just keep moving forward. 
Uh, let me ask you a, a really big picture question about where the league is and, and, and what the style of play is nowadays. To me, I often kind of feel like it's like a best of times, worst of times era for the league. There's, there's so much talent and there have never been more great storylines. That having been said, sometimes I do feel like I'm watching teams trading threes back and forth and it's not necessarily the most aesthetically pleasing thing for long stretches of time. To me, as somebody who I was used to be a huge baseball fan and the, the game's kind of lost me because I think the sabermetrics has proven that the best way to win, unfortunately, is not the way that's necessarily the most fun to watch. In the same way that, say, like the Pat Riley Knicks or the poster children for uh, an effective but ugly kind of bully ball thing in the 90s, what are the chances that James Harden is someday the poster child for one of the less aesthetically pleasing eras in NBA history? <laughs> um, it's interesting because those are in some ways polar opposites, right? Like right. We they, think of absolutely. Like the- yeah, like the 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 grinded out like '90s Knicks or the, even the bad boys who preceded them in Detroit, like this this ugly ball way of winning that was all about low scoring and Harden is all about you know uh, an ugly way of winning with offense. Um, and and you know I hesitate to even say that. Like it again, I have the beholder. If you're a mm-hmm. Rockets fan, you're certainly not worried about the aesthetics. Uh, so you can argue ugly or, or beautiful. It, no one's going to say yeah. it's the most exciting style of basketball. You just can't. <laughs> no, listen. My own uh, preference. I, 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 pref- I, there are other guys I've, I've enjoyed watching more, and and who I enjoy watching more in today's league than James Harden. I respect the hell out of what he does Naturally. and how effective he is. But yeah, it's it's not what I prefer to watch uh, for entertainment. And the game is is an entertainment vehicle as much as it's a competitive vehicle. I don't. I don't believe that this is a, a an ugly era for the NBA. I think that the Rockets are an outlier, and James Harden himself is an outlier. And I think that you know there are plenty of different styles that you can enjoy. And the Warriors, especially the pre-Durant Warriors, everybody loved because it was ball movement and yeah, a lot of threes, but still some mid-range as well. And you know it was high pace, high scoring. They had a certain joy about them. We always talk about the Warriors and joy. They were fun to watch. And I think the the, you know, the Bucks are a lot of fun to watch in a, in, a, in a very different way. And there are other teams that I think are enjoyable. I think if we're, if we're worried about this era at all, it goes to a conversation I had with Kirk Goldsberry on my podcast recently, which is – and Kirk Goldsberry, ESPN analyst and worked for the Spurs for a while too. And he does all those amazing, very cool uh, heat maps, you know, NBA half-court heat maps showing, you know, uh, you know hot zones and, and shot, you know, shot selection and all this. Kirk is worried, as some people at the league level are too, by the way, that this uh, three-point boom may eventually override everything. That yeah. the tra- the trajectory right now – it has increased so fast, <clears throat> so so rapidly, and continues to increase that it, it's not a stretch to say in four or five years, 40% of all shots might be threes, or 50% of all shots might eventually be threes. And what does the league look like then? If everybody is going money ball, mori ball, <clears throat> and only wanting shots beyond the, uh, behind the arc or within three feet of the basket, what does that do to the aesthetics of the game, to the, the, the types of players who can function in the game? Uh, strategy, everything. And that is, while it's it's not a real concern in this moment, 
it is a real concern in the in the the moment the broader moment that we're living in um in that we have to see where this is going and and try to anticipate and i think the league is is definitely attentive to this and studying it i don't think like right now the the league is in a very good place it's it's incredibly competitive or excuse me it's incredibly entertaining and at a certain level competitive we may say well it's the warriors era and then that makes it non-competitive yeah listen a lot of eras have been dominated by a team and there was still great competition at, at other levels. It's still exciting to watch your team make that leap from, you know, outside the playoffs to a seventh seed to a third seed. It's still exciting to watch your team get deep in the playoffs. Just because the champion might feel uh, pre preordained in some way doesn't mean that there's not a lot of intrigue along the way. We have to stop viewing the NBA or any league as simply about, well, it's just about the championship. Like, there's plenty else to enjoy about sports other than just what happens at the very end of a season. Well, yeah, and that that at least is probably a, a short-term issue because it's, you know, the Warriors are probably not running back their big four next year, and you take any one of those guys out, and I think you're looking at a, the most fascinating league that I can remember in my lifetime on paper. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, you know, and depending on what else happens this summer, too, right? right? If Durant leaves the Warriors, suddenly the Warriors go from super team to still really, really good team, but that has some doubts. And especially because now all of a sudden that lack of bench will really show up. And uh, because of the way the cap works, they can't just take Durant's money and spread it around to a bunch of other players. They're still going to be over the cap. They will have a hard time um, trying to restructure their roster. So they become more of an ordinary contender instead of a, a, a super-duper contender, but they're still a contender without him. Sure. Um, do the Raptors keep Kawhi Leonard? If they do, they're a contender. If he leaves and goes to the Clippers, the Clippers all of a sudden become a new contender in the West. And if Durant goes to, to you know, Durant could go to the Clippers, he could go to the Nets, he could go to the, to the Lakers if he wanted to, he could go to the Knicks. Now, if Durant goes to the Knicks, I don't think the Knicks are a contender. Even if Kyrie goes with them, I don't think the Knicks are going to be a contender. But the, how these players all decide to, you know, where they where their next paths lead them in July is going to completely reshuffle the power structure of the league, especially if one of those moves is Durant, because the Warriors come down a notch, some other teams are going to come up a notch. Now, uh, you, you mentioned the the Nets and the Knicks, so let me bring them into this conversation. Now, now that we've talked about <laughs> all the really uh, fascinating good teams, we can talk about the Knicks. Um, and I can say that because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm from New York and I'm wearing Nets socks at the moment. Um, <laughs> it's so baffling to me. Everybody says, well, no, you know, there, there are the people who will tell you, Durant, and probably Kyrie are just going to New York and they don't need to give you a reason. Don't worry about it. It's a foregone conclusion. And then there are the rest of us without any inside information or you know belief that we have any inside information who go, why on earth would a superstar in their prime go there? But let me ask you something. It would be crazy for a superstar to not have their doubts about James Dolan. Why would a superstar with a little bit of a long memory not have some doubts about the the Nets ownership because we all know about the trade and but I think what people forget about the trade is that Prokhorov so wildly changed course after making the trade. The big trade for people who don't remember was we give all this stuff future assets to the Celtics but we get these stars back. Who cares about all the picks we're giving away? We're going to keep throwing money at this and we're going to keep buying stars so those picks are going to be in the 20s and they're not going to be very valuable first round picks. Then he got the bill after I think one year and was like, "Oh, Forget about that. Let's just bottom out. And that is effectively what made that Celtics trade so awful. The Nets have been very, very well run at a head coach level, at a GM level. But Prokhorov is still the guy at the top. If I'm a superstar, I mean, is he even around? 
Prokhorov is not around, and I think one of the problems with some NBA teams is the absentee ownership. I think it's a real problem for some teams, and the Nets are one of those teams where I think it's certainly had an impact. Now, he was willing to spend. That's always nice. Spending a no, spending, Being willing to spend alone is not enough to be a good owner. Uh, if that were the case, then James, uh, James Dolan of the Knicks would be a good owner. He spends uh, very willingly, but he does absolutely everything else wrong. Um, Prokhorov... You know, almost similar. Yeah, you know, they took all the wrong lessons from the Knicks. They thought that uh, going for big names, big swings, winning the press conference, spending a lot, talking a big game, they thought that that was the the way to prosperity on the court. And as just as it has not been for the Knicks, it wasn't for the Nets. As I say, they took all the wrong lessons from the Knicks. All that said, uh, Prokhorov seems to have learned his lesson um, in hiring Sean Marks. They've given him the autonomy, the latitude to build in a much more organic way. Now, you could say they didn't have much of a choice. Uh, they had, as you point out, traded so many of their assets to the Celtics in that ill-fated deal that there really wasn't much else to do other than leverage all your cap room, make some uh, opportunistic type trades, acquire extra draft picks, do all kinds of creative, excuse me, creative things. And Sean Marks has done that to the hilt. And the Nets have been patient with it. Prokhorov has been patient with it. So I think that unlike the Knicks, who are never patient, and they're trying, they're, they're flirting with patience right now with this current plan. We'll see how long it <laughs> well, lasts, they, especially they, they, if they strike out the summer. But They're always really committed to a plan until they change to another plan they're really committed exactly. to. Exactly. So now the Nets have been, have, have, have been very committed to this plan for the last three years with Sean Marks and, and Kenny Atkinson. That team of leadership has got the Nets on a very good, healthy path that people all around the league have great regard for. You cannot find anybody to really to say an ill word about the, the job that Marks and Atkinson have done and with Prokhorov's backing. Now, the other piece here is the Nets are in process of the ownership shifting. Uh, Joseph Tsai, who was the founder of Alibaba uh, over in China, he is coming into uh, there's a, a, a handoff taking place over the next, I think it's the next year or so. So Sai is one of the the top uh, minority owners right now. Eventually, he'll be the majority owner, the controlling owner, and this will be his ship to run. And we'll see what his leadership looks like and how often he's around. Um, so we'll see. But what it, you do ask the right question, though, Michael. The right question, I think, for any free agent superstar is: Do you feel comfortable in trusting your career, your livelihood, your reputation, your stature, your legacy? to this owner, whether that's James Dolan, whether that's Jeannie Buss, whether that's Steve Ballmer, whether it's Mikhail Prokhorov and now Joseph Tsai with the Nets, you should look at that. And I don't think guys always do. And I don't think their agents or their advisors always do, but they should because NBA teams and the way that they succeed or fail is very much a reflection, I believe, on the culture set by ownership. And those that are perpetual losers and dysfunctional, it's usually because of the owner and what the, the, the tone they've set. And the ones that succeed are, are, are a reflection of, of the healthier culture that their owners have set. And if I'm Kevin Durant, I look long and hard at that before I decide to commit to the Knicks and Jim Dolan. Do you get uh, the sense... You know, I know a lot of people around the league, as we say, are excited about what the Nets are doing and how the Nets are run. There still seems to be a noticeable lack of buzz as somebody who has been, you know, uh, trying to rub two sticks together and make fire. You know, myself as a Nets fan for all these years, not a lot of enthusiasm is catching on about them in terms of actually 
people wanting to go to the arena or you know wear their merch or whatever do you feel like players are as excited like top tier players are as excited about what the nets are doing as front office types and stat geeks are you know, I, I think it, for front office stuff, it takes kind of a, a, the nerdiest of the nerdy basketball fans or media to appreciate what the Nets have done. Like, yeah. ooh, that, that Damari Carroll trade was amazing because they uh, absorbed his bad contract from Toronto that the Raptors wanted to offload, but, you know, at, at, at his you know lowest point. And if he gets healthy, he's a good player. And, oh, they got a first and second round pick with that. Like, so we can nerd out on how they, they creatively used their cap room right. and got... Got Damari Carroll plus two picks. Those picks became the two uh, European players, that uh, rookies that they've been playing this year. Um, Kuroks. Uh, Kuroks and, and uh, Musa, who hasn't gotten quite as much time. But both like looking like really good young players. And they got those guys just for being willing to take on Carroll's contract. So yeah, the average NBA fan probably doesn't care about that. And maybe the average NBA player is not looking at Sean Marks' clever use of his cap room. But they do notice things like oh man, that team that only won 30 games last year just beat the hell out of us for 48 minutes and stole a game at the buzzer. Or we beat them, but man, we had to work our friggin' tails off just to do it. And they've earned respect. And over the last couple of years, that's, that is the impression that they've made on guys. Everybody knows that the Nets play their tails off and that they give it their best. And that they also play a modern game too. This is the other thing that, that I think the Nets have as an advantage to them that some other teams that have rebuilt recently have not, including the Knicks. The Nets from day one, Kenny Atkinson said, we are playing the modern style. We are going for layups and dunks or three-pointers. We are eschewing the mid-range game. We, are, we don't have the shooters to pull this off. We know we don't have the shooters to pull this off. We're going to have them shoot threes anyway because this is the style I want to play. This is who we're going to be. This is our identity. And when we eventually get the talent, they will know exactly what they're buying into, that this is how we play. And so they went through, especially the first year, where the outline of their system was kind of, you know, Warriors-like or a little bit Warriors and Rockets-like, or it's a hybrid of a few different things. But you could identify what they were. They just couldn't pull it off. And then as they got a little bit more talent and a little bit more talent and took some swings and got a Spencer Dinwiddie and a Joe Harris, and these guys started to blossom here... Then you saw what the payoff could be, and I, so no players don't necessarily look at how great a, a GM is with cap room, but they certainly see how quickly a team creates an identity and how hard they play, and they can look at that and say, you know what, I'd like to play there. Those are those are teammates I'd like to play with. They play a selfless style. I like that coach. Kenny Atkinson's really developed those players. He's a good dude. He communicates well with his guys. I could see myself there. That's what they look at. Let me ask you something. I heard uh, I th- Jeff Van Gundy one time heard him say that the gap between the first player, the best player in the league, and the thirtieth best player in the league is vast. But in his opinion, the gap between the best coach in the league and the thirtieth best coach was quite a bit narrower. The idea being, you know, some people just have elite athletic gifts. Coaching is something that can be learned and can be mastered, relatively speaking. Um, what percentage of of front offices do you think are way better than all of the other front offices what is the top tier is there like a a a lebron to the 30th best player in the league type gap or is it more of uh that there are a bunch of smart teams and there's a reason why i'm asking you this it seems to me that there are uh, a, a lot of teams that sort of make all of the smart moves they don't do there aren't a lot of dumb teams left and it almost seems like the only way you can really pop to that next level is to 
sort of get lucky. There aren't a lot of teams left playing checkers. Almost all teams are playing chess, and unless you have a Steph Curry fall into your lap, relatively speaking, and then get a great contract, and then get Draymond, and then get Durant because of the vagaries of the you know the uh, collective bargaining agreement makes him available to you that year, or your uh, the Houston Rockets, and you trade for James Harden, but James Harden is even better than you thought he was going to be, or you're the Cavaliers, and LeBron James was born in Akron. Like, how possible is it to? be the smartest guy in the room and build the best team? Or can you just get yourself to that precipice and then kind of get lucky? I think it's a combination, as with a lot of things, of skill and luck. And I think that you, if you if you took whoever you think the smartest basketball mind in the league is, right? Like if you were to name your top five GMs, I think most people would agree on this group that it's probably some combination of Daryl Morey, Danny Ainge, Masai Ujiri, Sam Presti, um, R.C. Buford, right? Like yeah. those would be, that that would be your your royalty of front office leaders. If you took any one of those guys and dropped them in any market with whatever situation, I would have a, a fair amount of confidence that whether they got to a team that was completely capped out or a team that was barren of of assets and and talent as the Nets were a few years ago, whatever they inherited. I've got a lot of confidence that those are guys who are smart enough to hire the right people around them, to build a front office, build a culture, hire the right coach, and get them on the right path. That doesn't mean they're going to win a title. And if they don't win a title, it doesn't mean that I was wrong in my assessment of them. People love doing this with Daryl Morey all the time. There are still these skeptics out there. Ah, he's just about numbers. He's just about this. He's about that. He doesn't know. He's never won a championship. Folks, that's not the point. It's really hard to win a championship and a small number of teams hoard them because you need one of the top like three players in the league at any given moment. And if you don't get one of those guys, you're you're already behind the eight ball. It's what these guys do year to year that you know who really knows how to build and who doesn't. And by the way, those five aren't the only ones. There are some other guys who are really smart and have done some great things, including Sean Marks, including Tim Connolly in Denver. But even then, like Tim Connolly in Denver, like most self-effacing guy in the world, right? And most fans don't even know his name until I'm saying it right now, probably. Tim Connolly has put together what, by record, has been the second-best team in the West this year. Another best player is Nikola Jokic, who, if you ask Tim Connolly or anybody else who works there about Jokic, a second-round pick, they'd say, yeah, we'd love to tell you that we were geniuses for grabbing him, but if we were geniuses, we should have grabbed him like 30 picks earlier in the first round. And no, of course we didn't know what we had. Like, we knew what we liked in him. But we didn't know he was going to become this. <laughs> and listen, even the Spurs, R.C. Buford used to always say, I would go in to do a story in the early days of the dynasty, like when there were only like two titles in, and I would say, R.C., tell me about how brilliant you guys are about drafting Tony Parker at the end of the first round and Mono Ginobili in the second round and how you, know, you guys always get the best value no matter where you're picking. And R.C.'s response every single time would be, listen, it's, it's easy to look like a genius when you've got Tim Duncan. And that was one that was just kind of gifted to them because it was it was you know ping pong ball bounce. It was a lottery you know thing with with Duncan. So the best in the business still need a little bit of luck, and they know it. And the ones that are are well, and a little are, bit of tanking with the David Robinson thing. Uh, yeah, you know Arguably. we don't need to go down yeah. that. That yeah, <laughs> we don't need to go down that path. But um, but it's it is a it is a lot of everything that. But that doesn't mean that it's only luck, and it doesn't mean that you can then. Uh, give a free pass to certain GMs or owners and say, oh, they just had bad luck. Oh, they just had bad ping pong, bon- ping pong ball bounces. Look at the teams that have done it well and that have built contenders, whether they won championships or not. And even if they didn't get to the conference finals, just look at the ones that have been built sustainable, really good teams 
and the creativity it's taken to do it and the the draft picks that they've aced late in the first round. That's how you can see where the difference is uh, among GMs. And with coaches, it's things like Mike Budenholzer goes to the Milwaukee Bucks, a 44-win team, and gets them up past 60. That got 16-win jump from from middling lower-tier playoff team to best record in the league without adding a single All-Star. The, the best element you added in the offseason was the coach. That tells you how valuable certain coaches are. But I think, you know, to your point about Van Gundy, listen, I, there are only a handful of coaches who I think who could have taken the Bucks from 44 to 60 in a single season just by saying, we're doing things differently now. We're doing things my way. And, and, and that's that's the whole explanation for the leap. I don't think all 30 coaches could have done that. No, that's a really, really good point. And uh, I, I'm glad you bring him up because there's always the short list of the, the great minds, you know, Pop and Rick Carlisle. And I think, yeah, Bud clearly puts himself in that conversation, which we all should have known from the Hawks in, in the first place with what he's done with Milwaukee this year. Um, I only have a couple minutes left, and I wanted to touch on something I heard you say on Zach Lowe's podcast that I thought was great. I'm sure you and I aren't the first people to say this, but I've been saying for years, when we talk about who's in the Hall of Fame, we're always counting stats and we're counting all-star appearances. And, and uh, let me know if I'm putting words in your mouth. I believe you said the Hall of Fame is for guys that you can't tell the story of the league without talking about this guy. Is that more or less what you think is the ultimate deciding factor? Yeah, although I narrowed it, I think, a little bit more than that. It was just like, you know, say Chris Webber, who's been snubbed again and who I, I think is very deserving. You can't tell the story of that period of the NBA without the Kings and without Chris Webber. So if you're talking about the early 2000s to the mid-2000s or late 90s to the mid-2000s of the NBA, you can't tell that story without Chris Webber. And that, to me, in addition to his stats and other honors, is what creates the case for him. So, yeah, that's that's my rough definition. Yeah, I, I like that. I've always thought of it sort of in terms of when you circle the date on your calendar, that guy's coming to town. I have to buy a ticket. You know, as somebody who grew up in New York, I resented Pedro Martinez, but you you had to see Pedro Martinez play. To me, it's, it's not that that hard to figure out who a Hall of Famer is. Russell Westbrook could have, you know, God forbid, a, a career-ending injury tomorrow, and he is a Hall of Famer because he's that guy. You have to see him play. Yeah, and and it's also, you know, because there are there are probably some guys we could find. Like, nobody off the top of my head, but there are probably guys you could identify as oh, must see, but maybe doesn't have the stats to be a Hall of Famer. I'm not sure who that would be, but you could you could probably conceive of that that individual. Um, so it, it is it is both things, right? Like you, the certain stats need to be there. Certain other achievements, whether it's all-star nods or um, all-NBA, all-defense. And, you know, it helps to have been part of of important teams. You know, if Chris Webber has all the same stats but had been playing for some irrelevant team in Charlotte that whole time that was never in the postseason, then that would be different. But he was the centerpiece of an incredible team, a really entertaining team, that also happened to be one of the toughest challengers to the Lakers during a, a time when the Lakers were a dynasty with Shaq and Kobe. And so that Chris Webber really mattered a lot in that narrative. That's exactly right. And and it is kind of cruel, but it is it is true. The, essentially, the Hall of Fame is about taking your kids there and saying, this is everything that happened before you were around. And uh, it does matter who was making it to the late rounds of the playoffs, you know, fair or unfair. Uh, thank you uh, so much for your time, Howard. I'm so glad we finally got to do this, but we do have to go. No, this was a great conversation. Had a blast. Thanks for having me. You are at Howard Beck. Um, You write for Bleacher Report. You have the new thing that just went up uh, a couple days ago about uh, why 
New York and Los Angeles might be attractive free agent destinations for not the usual reasons. And you host the full 48 pod. We'll be checking out everything you're doing straight through the playoffs. Thanks again. Thanks so much.